Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, look, uh, thank you very much for coming. Now, does anybody else here remember the um, early 70s uh, rock show on Radio 1 uh, that, was, uh, that was fronted by Alan Fluff Freeman? It, it, it always featured requests that ended with things like, not off, not off yet. <laughs> ended with requests that had sort of more softs, toll, gong, Van de Graaff and heap. That one probably sent in by me. And what a glorious and liberating and imaginative era it was. You wonder sometimes if you dreamt this all, but this book confirms that there really was a time when rock musicians played Chinese flutes and had names like Bloom Dido Bad de Grass. And people wrote songs about the return of the giant hogweed and went on stage with foxes' heads and uh, wearing their, one of their wives' dresses. And people played in time signatures so complicated that it made you feel intellectually superior just to own the album. Now, the book we're going to talk about today is called A New Day Yesterday, UK Progressive Rock in the 70s, and it's a wonderfully detailed and affectionate celebration of a lost age and a suitably prog-like 600 pages long. (laughs) And here, yes, the extended solo, and this is the sainted soul who wrote it wearing a psychedelic shirt so loud that, as he said, you can probably hear it on the podcast, Mike Barnes. (laughs) Excellent. Well, welcome, Mike. The traditional first question is always, what was the music that you heard growing up in, 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 when you were young in your house, and what was it being played on? Yes, what was the machinery? What was the machinery? Was there a wind-up gramophone? Or a... Yeah. It was a bit more advanced than that. Uh, it was an HMV kind of red uh, box mono that you opened up with a sort of plasticky, uh, sort of sticky-back plastic... Uh, cover to it and the, the things I first heard South Pacific was the first album of uh, course oh, right. okay. I ever bought now, did, you, did you actually buy the soundtrack Great. South yeah. did you buy not the, the original re- card no no you bought the Woolworths first yeah, on the embassy right. label yeah, yeah. didn't you <laughs> you did so did we yeah gonna um, wash that man right out of my yeah. hair was that the one yeah, yeah. Wagner Rachmaninoff uh, were uh, 
that isn't a person, that's two th things. Uh, yeah. Uh, where where two, two of the things I listened to that, that were parents, like Scheherazade by Rimsky-Korsakov. So that there, there was a lot of classical and South Pacific. Not, uh, those are the things I heard first, yeah. So did you get into pop music in the traditional way? Oh, yeah, yeah, I did. I, I listened to... Uh, what did I listen to? Uh, oh, I suppose the Beatles. I, I can remember them when I was... I was about four years old hearing the Beatles. Right. So that was my, one of my earliest memories, yeah. It just kind of pervaded the whole era, really. So how, how did you come to write this particular book? <laughs> Not quite such an easy question to, to answer. No, I, I was approached by somebody and I immediately said, no, I think it's... It, it's I, no, it's, you know, it's going to be too much work. And then... That's a really good answer. Yeah, <laughs> and it's true. Well, yeah. it, it absolutely was true. Uh, it's true. But then I thought, well, actually, it might be quite an interesting thing to do and to go back to that era. I kind of grew up between prog and punk in the seventies. I thought, go back and, and look at it and actually speak to as many people who were musicians and people around on the scene as possible. And uh, the, the more you know, I, I wasn't able to get the idea out of my mind, unfortunately. And the uh, then that was in oh that was years ago and it took me five years to write it. Really? Yeah. No, d research it and write yeah, yeah. it. Right. I severely underestimated the amount of work that was going to be necessary. Well, don't you find also nowadays if you're writing anything non-fiction, the amount of research material just grows yes. exponentially, doesn't it? You come back to it six months later. There's more of it, isn't there? Well, yeah, I'd be thinking, well, I think I'm probably in the home straight now. I thought, God, I haven't spoken to anyone from Bartley James Harvest yet. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Damn. Yeah. So I had to reschedule my, re readjust my timetable a bit on that. But yeah, the, the whole thing. they must so have what, all wanted to, to, yeah, to so tell us you. Because you just won. No, because, you know, not many people, I can't think of any massive books that have been written about Prague, and they must be dying for some kind of recognition of a lot of these people. Well, there have been some, but I thought to try and separate it out, uh, there have been a lot where people have, have assessed their record collections and some earlier ones where there were a certain amount of interviews. But I, I wanted it to be interview-driven to try and dispel received wisdom, for instance, and for me to kind of get really the story myself rather than my early kind of um, reminiscences of it. Because there, there is so much, so much received wisdom, like uh, it's all about hobbits. It's all about wizards. So go on, yeah, tell, yeah. tell us, tell us yeah. what are the greatest bits of received wisdom about Prague. Or progressive rock. It's not prog. Prog is a different thing, isn't it? Uh, oh, yeah, this is going to... Uh, Sorry, I'm yeah. no, no, let's uh, not introduce that. Maybe come to that later, yeah. Right, okay. uh, well, received wisdom, I think, is that everyone was rich. Uh, everyone was kind of entitled, rich, uh, kind of white mummies, boys, and you had to Middle have class, probably. Yeah, middle yeah, class. Middle yeah. I think they probably mainly were, but the idea was you had to have a lot of money to be in a prog band. And I remember hearing a radio show, I can't remember who it was, and somebody said, huh... Prog, prog rock, a 20-minute flute solo followed by lyrics about hobbits. I thought, well, that's kind of funny in an odd sort of way, but it doesn't actually describe accurately anything at all no. from that era. So I thought, well, you know, it, it'd be nice to try and find out what actually did happen. There were some strange things happening, but not actually quite... That, uh, you know, not a 20-minute flute solo followed by lyrics about hobbits. So, now you... The, in, the, uh, in the subtitle of the book, you, you confine yourself to... The 1970s. Yeah, you didn't. You decided against. Well, I thought it, it continue it, it to the present day or anything like that. Well, considering I had to cut 
80 pages out of the book for, 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 to, to get it down to 600. I think I made a wise choice right, by okay. just staying to the end of the 70s. What I really wanted to get was the first spark of it and, and the first wave and the, in, in its heyday, why it happened and, and, and find the, the, the sort of sight, the, the kind of sounds and smells and flavours of the era. And I thought I, I needed to concentrate on a, a shorter time span than going to the 80s, 90s, it, you know sort of go over to mainland Europe, Yugoslavia, as it was then, and all this kind of stuff. People said, oh, there's some great Yugoslavian prog in the 70s. Yeah. I thought, well, maybe yeah. leave that for some It time. is. Well, we can get on to it later, but it is, it is a, 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 a almost uniquely British thing to some extent. Well, this I is it. It I, is. I, just I mean, something about the character of prog and, and all the, all so the yeah, references. So, yeah, talk to us about that, then, the British nature of prog. Well, I think it came from... Uh, well, it, it did come from psychedelia. I think a lot of the... There were certain aspects of psychedelia that uh, were almost like, from players who'd played uh, soul. There were a lot of people who played soul music. People like Dave Greenslade had played with Gino Washington, for instance. And yep. uh, uh, Caravan, who had been the Wildflowers, all started off playing soul, rhythm, and blues. And the, the common thing is they thought, well, we can't really do this as well as, as the. Uh, uh, mainly black Americans who'd, 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 who'd originated it. So we want to try and explore something in our own psyche and our own background and what's seeped into our, our minds throughout the years. And I think with, with psychedelia, there was a certain kind of regression to childhood in a way, like tracks like uh, Auntie Mary's Dress Shop by Tomorrow and uh, Mabel Greer's Toy Shop, the, yeah. the band who... Uh, went, went on People to wrote songs about bicycles. Yeah, like, bicycles, gnomes. Toys. There gnomes. were gnomes in psychedelia, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, in fact, one or two gnomes. Yeah. Um, but and I think that there, there was a certain... Um, moving away from, from something they, they felt was, was aping someone else's culture and trying to, as I say, try, trying to think what, what it was that drove them. It might be childhood influences, you know, classical influences. A lot of keyboard players were kind of classically trained... Uh, a lot of drummers had been jazz, uh, you know, had, had originated playing jazz. And this is mixed up also with some of the thinking of the day, that's that slightly mystical thinking. And uh, uh, Lord of the Rings did make its presence felt slightly, but that, that sort of literature as well. So that, that all seeped into it, I think. OK, so we're, we're looking now at a, a visual of uh, the cover of Revolver and... Uh, and the early, well, not the early small faces, I suppose the middle period small faces. Well, the book but does start us in Ichiku Park. Yeah, it? yeah, that's, that's right. Why did you choose to do that? It was quite well, interesting. <laughs> well, I, I thought it was quite interesting that, that, that this place had, had taken on a, a sort of importance in a way, or it had, had to me. I thought, where is this place? What does it mean? And, of course, you, you can't actually find where it is because it, it's difficult to actually ascertain where it is. I went to Valentine's Park uh, near Gantz Hill, uh, in Ilford, that's one of the three locations. And I thought, I just wanted to go back there. You know, I, I can't say that I, I had a, a huge revelation whilst I was there, but it seemed like the first step, really, because that, that, that was very much an English... Uh, well, Ichiku Park was almost like a Stones Sunday afternoon and there's, there's the ducks around and it's kind of sort of idyllic but a bit strange. And it just seemed to be the, the uh, place to start, really. And a lot of it's to do with, I mean, you know, I think Roger Daltrey says about Revolver in, in, in the book that um, he heard Revolver and realised you didn't have to write love songs anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, you mentioned various psychedelic singles. 
You mentioned, um, uh, you know, I can hear the grass grow and Arnold Lane and White Shade of Pale and uh, the Tomorrow record, uh, My White Bicycle. Tomorrow being Steve Howe's old group. Mm, And that's quite interesting because they're all all about something completely different from what songs tended to have been written about before, pop songs. It's a very liberating new era. Well, that's right. Which moved into prog, didn't it? Yes, that's right. I think, you know... it was an exploration outside. I, I think, although there, there was a certain uh, success, in, uh, well, chart success, as you mentioned, there, there was that thing, it's shearing away from just being a pop song, the, the sort of middle-of-the-road pop song that's written by pop song writers. Of course, yeah. the Beatles were the ones who managed to get, uh, uh, should, should I say, writing teams. And the Beatles, of course, sheared away from that because they, they, they could write everything themselves. And the, I, th- I think the... Yeah, the, the 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 idea was to explore and to be different. I think, and I think as that went into prog, I think that, like for instance, one of the things was uh, it was quite exciting to find ten-minute tracks because it seemed to be, you know, you've timing how far away it's gone from the normal stuff. You know, it's like uh, you've got your two-minute pop song and you've got a ten-minute piece. You think, oh, this is different. You know, it means more. It's so you, true. It's you, used to, epic. You, used get, yeah, yeah. you used to get LPs out of their covers in those days, uh, and, and you could tell they were different because you could look at the surface. Of them. I spent a lot of time looking at grooves, thinking, "Oh, that's the bit yeah. where it changed into yeah. that." Uh, <laughs> I can remember as a teenager getting a copy of Soft Machine Three, which we'll get onto. Soft Machine Third, and, and it's a double album, and it's only got four tracks. Yeah, on. yeah. So that's do the maths. That's one track per side. I remember immediately thinking, "This is going to be brilliant." Just because it was really long. That's right. <laughs> Even better than an album with two songs beside. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. Do, do you think there's any sense in which I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in the odd bit of kind of uh, minority opinion here? Uh, do you think these were the bands who couldn't get girls and couldn't dance? Uh, well, yes, probably. There, there was. That's uh, very candid of you. The, yeah. the, the, uh, most of the people, uh, the, for instance. Uh, I spoke to Polly Palmer from Family, and the the book that uh, Groupie by Jenny Fabian oh, right, was written about Family. Yeah. I said, so, you know, was anything like this in the band? He was going, well, he said, no, it was all sort of hairy guys, really, although they were the odd occasion. And uh, I also spoke to Mont Campbell of Egg and asked him, was it true that there were signs at their gigs going, no dancing? <laughs> uh, and he said... No dancing? <laughs> yeah. He said, no, that, that, that was, I think, apocryphal, but it was probably pretty unlikely anyway. <laughs> and he was saying that afterwards there'd be just queues of guys asking them about gear, basically. Yeah, about yeah. what time to do they were playing yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so this, was, this was who of Egg? Egg. Mont Campbell, the bass player from Egg. And I, 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 I hesitate to ask, presumably they're still going. Who, Egg? Yes. Uh, no. They're not? No. So are you telling me that the members of Egg are innocently, they're kind of school teachers or they're opening shops or whatever, and you <laughs> appeared out of the blue and rang them up and said, were you once in a group called Egg? I'd like to talk to you about it. Well, I did know somebody who knew Mont Campbell, so that made it easier, and he was quite happy to talk about it. He, he would have been thrilled. thrilled. To bitch. Yeah, he really. would have been thrilled. <laughs> No, I'm serious. What's he, do, what's he do for a living? I'm sorry, I'm interested. Uh, I didn't get around to asking him that, really. Uh, uh, 
Uh, so, sorry, on this yeah. note, I have to say that I once bumped into Mike Ratledge of Soft Machine. He was living around the corner from where I lived in the, in the early 80s in Dalston. And I went up to him, I'm such a fan. And I said, I'm, look, I'm really sorry to bother you, and this must happen all the time. He said, no. <laughs> I said, no, no, it, it doesn't. I said, I, I'm sure I'm bothering you. He said, you're not. <laughs> so I thought, you know, th- th- I think when Prague has a, it's quite well, a... Then he confolded you job. home, did he? Right? Yeah, that's right. I couldn't, I couldn't get rid of him, actually. Did <laughs> he, was he wearing his rectangular Rect- spell? Had still got the rectangular spectrum, amazing. Oh, wow. Wanted to be recognised, probably. <laughs> yeah, By only so. me. Yeah. Very good, very yeah. good. I mean, now, one of the guys, we're just zipping around, though, very, you know, because you cover an awful lot in this, in this tome. Uh, but one of the groups you focus on as being quite influential here is a group I actually saw, is the Graham Bond Organisation. Oh, yeah. For, for the benefit of the many younger listeners out there in the, <laughs> the audience. Uh, explain the Graham Bond organisation. Well, they they grew. They were the bridge between uh, jazz and uh, classical in a way. I, I can't remember exactly the the various permutations, but John Heisman played with um, G- Ginger Baker, Jack Bruce, who uh, from Cream. John Heisman was uh, in Coliseum, uh, and. Um, Graham Bond was a saxophonist and keyboard player, and he was one of the first. Well, I'll say that. Well, one of the first people who, who started to, of that era, in, in that scene, who started to bring in more classical motifs. I mean, obviously, obviously classical influences, uh, has influenced jazz, melodies, and all sorts of stuff, but this was to be a bit more spectacular. He, he, would, he would put uh, pieces of cardboard between the keys. Yes, he would jam the notes yeah, together, to, didn't he? To get drones, and he would play bits of, like, Bucks to Carter and Fugue, um, things like that. And one, one of the first people, sorry, one of the main people, the most significant people who was influenced by him was Keith Emerson. Because he, he uh, so someone, uh, I spoke to Pete Brown, who, who used to write the lyrics for Cream and he had various groups. And he said he remembers seeing Keith Emerson uh, staring uh, lovingly at Graham Bond from the uh, wings when they played uh, the Marquee once. So, he was a sort of pivotal figure, and if he hadn't had so many personal problems, I think he would have continued to be quite an interesting character. It's, it's a bit hard to tell which way he, he would have veered, because it was a bit rock, a bit uh, jazz, and, I say, that little bit of classical influence in there Guide as well. Guy at Finsbury Park tube style. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He did. Yeah. And wasn't he also into black magic and so forth? Well, yeah, I think I... Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> aren't we all? <laughs> yeah. We've all been there. Well, uh, Peter Hamill from Van de Graaff Generator, when he said that when they, they first signed to whatever label it was that I can't remember offhand, Graham Bond was, was, was assigned as their mentor. And he said they actually went into this room and he said he was a corpulent guy with greasy hair wearing an orange mini dress and purple tights and uh, snot dribbling down his nose. And they said, here's Graham Bond, he's going to look after he's you. Gonna, he's yeah. he said, he's going to steer you the right yeah. way. How much and, do I really want to be a musician? And, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. He went to Graham Bond's studio and there were black candles and pentagrams and various other kind of uh, black magic trappings here and there. But uh, and sadly, I think he died shortly after that. He he thought he was uh, he he was descended from Alistair Crowley, as many rock people have oh, done. Right, yeah, so. very yeah. again, We've very prominent. Most of them, yeah, yeah. I think, really, yeah. yeah. I, we can't let the mention of Pete Brown's name go past without pointing out that he ha- had the greatest album title ever. <laughs> 
which I think a writer saying is called Things May Come and Things May Go, but the art school, school dance, dance goes, goes on, on forever. forever. Isn't that wonderful? It's brilliant. Nobody bought that record, but everybody but remembered. everybody remembered the title. They remembered the yeah, title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. these were the days when you went to record shops and just, you read records, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Be- uh, long before you heard them. Also, a meal you can shake hands with in the dark was quite a good one of Pete Brown. That's good. Oh, that's really? Really? That's yeah. good. Oh, come on, you've got to throw in one now. It's, we're playing Pete God. Brown Snap here. <laughs> there was that, well, there's that, uh, there's that t- T-Rex one, isn't there? The, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. about the stars on your forehead or whatever it is. What, My what, people what? were there where stars on their, their brows. Hair, but now they're content to wear but stars on their brows. Very good. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. Now, uh, another key moment was there was the... I think it's Robert Wyatt is um, at the UFO Club and notices that all the audiences are sitting down. Mm. And because they're sitting down, people are inventing a different kind of music for an audience that is sitting down and listening because you've completely got their attention. They're concentrating and they can deal with longer, more complicated music. And yeah. so that, I thought that was a really interesting turning point in the, in the whole development of, of this kind of music. Yeah, I, I can remember Robert Wyatt said that uh, you could start off with a drone for like 10 minutes and, and no one would mind because they're, they're, they're all sitting down. But uh, not... Uh, and then he, he said that they were all rubbish dancers anyway, at, you, know, you know, at the yeah. UFO club. Yeah, yeah. But actually one thing also, someone else, was that uh, when Coliseum... Played and I can't remember the exact club now, but they were used to playing noisy jazz clubs in in the the West End with people talking and drinks being served and everything. And uh, and they said that, that they they were shown this one venue that that, that was a sit down venue, and they thought, what we're playing to a lot of people sitting down, are we? Yeah. They said, yeah, you know, this is it. And they thought, well, this is a bit odd, isn't it? You know, just like a sitting down audience. As, you know, as if they were going to watch a play or something, and they thought, yeah, but it was great because they were all quiet and uh, they, they 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 sat in in rapt attention, and I think that again, it, it, you know, it was different from people kind of kind of boogieing around. It was you sat down and you had beautiful you did. thoughts. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. I don't know if you even <laughs> had beautiful thoughts a lot of the time, but but you just, you know, I'm reminded of the um, Bette Midler always always says when the audience, when she gets a good round of applause, she always goes, you must be starved for entertainment. (laughs) (laughs) And that was what it was like in those days. You know, the audience felt kind of... They didn't demand a lot at all. You Mm. know, I'm going to sit there, I'm going to wait two hours before anything happens. And watch a bunch of yeah. blokes wandering on and off, <laughs> plugging yes, in bases. You're sitting in so a field forth. somewhere. There'll be no DJ, yeah. there'll be no explanation what's yeah. going on. Then some bunch of guys will just trundle <laughs> on, and it'll start with a ten-minute drone, and uh, and no and no stage will anybody True. goes rubbish. Get to the point. I can remember like being at a rock festival and waiting half an hour for anything at all. A group called Brewers Droop came. Oh, <laughs> and I can remember we all leapt to our feet. We never even heard them. I thought this is fantastic. <laughs> Someone's going to entertain us. But leaping to your feet, that's an interesting point, you know, because uh, I think we were, I was involved in some exchange about this on social media re- recently about people sitting down and people say, well, they didn't sit down during the Who. They did, actually. Mm. I saw a picture of the only the other oh, day yeah, of the, live who, at Leeds. the Who audience yeah. at Live at Leeds, which is arguably the greatest live rock and roll record ever made, and the audience are sitting on the floor. You know, as if they've, they've come to a political sitting or something. <laughs> it's a completely different, you know, and this is, we're looking here at a picture of uh, Tainton Hyde Park and the Rolling Stones, King Crimson, 
various bands there, and it was the same thing. People sat down. Yeah. And that, they, that created the space in which this music could, could exist. Could, yeah. It's just this accident happened at, at that particular time. Let's talk about some of the, some of the uh, you know, different influences that came into this, into this anything, sudden anything goes world, really. And uh, we're looking at, uh, at the cover of uh, Switched on Bark uh, by, uh, well, Wendy Carlos. Wendy it was, Carlos. It was Walter Carlos. Synthesizer. It was Walter Carlos in those days. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, but but you know that that whole idea of uh, playing classical music using electronic instruments, the, yeah, it got a lot of mileage, didn't it? Well, yes. I mean, it was something that was bound to happen. It was uh, with 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 the rate that technology was moving, and I mean, there's always been experimentation with with classical music and it being assimilated into and um, being messed around with for pop songs. I don't know if you remember Waldo de los Rios, Symphonies for the 70s. I do. Where they played Mozart's 40 with kind of wah-wah guitar and so someone, someone playing hi-hats. Yeah. So there was all that going on, but this was a, a, a marriage of space-age technology and kind of sort of a Baroque formality. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Keith Edmonds... Keith Edmondson heard the record, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, but he, he hadn't been aware it was out for a while, but then someone said, oh, you know, you ought to hear this. And he thought, wow, you know, I suppose it, it probably sort of took him back to the Graham Bond experience in a way, but, but with this new, new technology. And he thought, well, you know, I'm going to have to have one of those. And um, he, said, he said his father had worked at, you know, a telephone exchange, and he sort of quite liked the idea that he was playing something that looked, looked, looked like, like a, a telephone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he, he bought... Um, he tried to get a Moog synthesizer from Rob or Moog, I think it might be more correctly pronounced, from, from Moog. And they, he said, well, I hear Brian Jones has got one and you know, various other people. Will you sponsor me? And he said, no, you, you have to buy it like everyone else has done. And he said it came with no instructions. <laughs> and he, so Flat pack. Yeah, it was, it was, and he said he, he, he actually <laughs> had to fly over numerous times to actually speak to Robert Moog to ask him what was going on. Uh, so yes, th th there was that aspect of, of te technology meets classical music, and I think there was a definite yearning amongst people, uh, rock musicians or some rock musicians, to be taken as seriously as classical. Uh, was that, was that every, everybody had to say this in interviews? I remember the uh, in the Farewell Cream film, which Tony Palmer made. Yeah. They interviewed Jack Bruce, and he said somehow he said. Bach was a really good bass player. Yeah. Yeah. And I sat there at the age of 17 and thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> I knew nothing about Bach at all. Nothing about bass playing. But I just thought it sounded really profound. Well, Richard, What was the attraction then with classical music? What, 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 why, why do you think that... And where did it start? I mean, apart from Graham Bond, was it the move? The move did the... Did had their Tchaikovsky the, quotes? Yeah, there was... The, there was the, and Cherry Blossom Clinic had a lot... You know, it was almost like a little bit of a recitation of various kind of, kind of classical things. And, of course, yeah, the move with the... Um, 1812? Yeah, yeah. That, that's right. Which, which I hadn't even realised till recently. I thought, oh, yeah, of course, that's the... Uh, yeah. Uh, Some things fear, take a while yeah. to, yeah. to uh, sink in, yeah. But I think, I think there was a general... That I think it would have happened anyway. You know, rock meets classical music. It was bound to. You know, you'd have these, these sort of experimental classical pieces like... Um, there was a Malcolm Arnold piece. I think it had vacuum cleaners and it had... Uh, 
um, some people came on with guns and kind of pretended to shoot people at, at the end of it. it. You know, it was like a classical piece mixed with kind of performance in an absurdist way. So, I mean, it was bound, there was bound to be rock mixed with classical music at some point. And I think a lot of people like, thought, you know, you know, we are the new classical music. In fact, R Richard Williams, a melody maker, said, if Wagner was alive today, he'd be working with King Crimson. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I asked Richard Williams this, and after banging his head on the table, <laughs> yeah. he said, well, actually, maybe he would. Yeah. Uh, who knows? It's fair enough. So, I love the friction that you talk about when Deep Purple are recording with, them, with the RPO, and the RPO are incredibly condescending about these long-haired hippies. And you yeah. think it's all going to be perfect harmony, and they're just thinking, this is ludicrous. What am I doing? That's right. When, uh, when Deep Purple came into the rehearsal uh, with the Royal Phil, some, there were some wolf whistles. I mean, some of the way that the, the, that the orchestral players acted was very, very childish. I mean, they were, when Five Bridges by the Nice was performed, some of the orchestra had ostentatiously stuffed their ears full of cotton wool. Uh, what, while playing? Well, yeah, I think... Emerson came on... When it was recorded live, Keith Emerson went into the, the dressing room and found that the brass players were all getting stoned and then came out on stage and found that the, uh, the orchestra players, or some of them, had these great wads of cotton wool stuck in their ears. And he was thinking, this is going to be a disaster. Because some of them just didn't take it seriously. They, they just thought it was, you know, it was rubbish. And so that, I think that rather undermined... Uh, there were problems with, with, with John Lord. Because they, they also, uh, with, the, with the Deep Purple Concerto for a group and orchestra, because they just didn't take it seriously, and they weren't playing well. And uh, Malcolm Arnold uh, kind of delivered a rather angry blast of Anglo-Saxon, which, which I won't repeat, uh, at the, 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 the players, saying, you know, we're making history tonight. You, you know, you, you're meant to be one of the world's best orchestras. You, you aren't fit to share a stage with Deep Purple because you're playing so badly. He said, we're going to make history tonight, let's make good music as well. Although, it has to be said, you know, 50 years later, Smoke on the Water is still played. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, when was the last time anybody... Well, I don't know. Has it, it been a performance? Yeah. Yeah. group and I mean, orchestra, very rarely, surely. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it gets sort of brought out now and again. Oh, does it? Yeah. Oh, OK. Although, I, I, I'm not sure when, when it was last... Uh, performed, but there was a thing whereby it's almost like trying to trying to make uh, two two disparate elements that don't fit together. Yeah. Together. In fact, it was Mont Campbell of Egg said there, there's a lot of the frequencies, the mid-range frequencies of rock band and an orchestra. They just clash if you put them together. The the, the strings and the uh, and the guitars can't kind of go into a bit of a mush. And he said, you know, the kind of sonorities just, just don't fit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd sympathise with that. Who started the space race, then? Because there's, there's the, the interest in interstellar travel, which is, which is uh, Pink Floyd capitalised on. But where did, that, you know, where did they get that idea from? Who's, I mean, so you talk about Sun Ra, for example. Did they hear yeah. Sun Ra's records? I'm not sure that they did. I think it was. I think it was. It was another with Sun Ra that the whole thing was that he 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 grew up in the. Uh, Deep South, in a, I mean, he, he was quite an educated guy. He he, he had opportunities, uh, you know, and was a trained pianist. But he was aware of of the racism and the segregation in that area, and that he had that, therefore he had this idea, this kind of metaphorical escape to the stars. So that's when he claimed that he actually, uh, rather than being being born in the South, that he actually came from Saturn. 
And I think that, that, that sort of pervaded also like, like the German music from the early 70s as well, the sort of crack rock, as it's called. There was a feeling of escaping from the, the, the sort of what Germany had done in the fairly recent past and sort of, sort of a kind of, kind of cosmic escape route. And I think all this, those that, due to the fact, of course, that, that, that uh, there was a space mission that went to the moon, I think that, that also helped that, that, that whole thing about expanding out not, not just going back into your childhood, but actually going right out into outer space. Because, of course, Pink Floyd were uh, hired by the BBC, weren't they, to, that's right, to, to improvise... Some music for the moon landings, for yeah. The moon landing. Yeah, which was... Uh, I think that they, they'd already started that cosmic voyage with things like Astronomy Domini, which was from 67, that, had, that, 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 that was about yeah. the, uh, the, the cosmos, basically. Well, that's, that's kind of rather an imprecise... <laughs> Description, but it was about the cosmos. So um, yeah, but and of course, it, it, there was there was Hawkwind in search of space, which uh, the the idea that Hawkwind was an actual craft, and the, the fact that you, you would get this ship's log in the the uh, you know in the cover of the album, and the, the the album was you know was the record of the voyage, like some ancient scrolls or something, right, right, or like Eric von Daniken's kind of chariots of the gods yeah, kind of thing, yeah. and then the, you know you, you owned this thing that that, that was a that sort of uh, a kind of record of a space voyage. So you know, I mean, you know, with science fiction, that it, it, it's quite it's quite an appealing concept, I think, really. So we can't avoid talking about. Emerson, Lake and Palmer. I wouldn't even try to avoid talking about <laughs> Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Because, you know, they were, you know, Keith Emerson coming from the Nice and Greg Lake from King Cribs and where did Carl Palmer come from? Uh, Tommy Rooster? Yeah, that's right. And he'd, he'd been in, in, in the crazy world of Arthur Brown as well. Oh, right, OK. Right. Uh, of whom more later. Yes. Um, but uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, it all struck me, were put together for the American market. Yeah, I'm not sure. Perhaps they were. I mean, they they don't. They basically thought of themselves as just. They, there'd been a, a meeting between Emerson and Greg Lake when King Crimson were about to break up in the end of 1969. Uh, he he liked Greg Lake's singing. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not sure how much of a plan there was exactly, uh, but it was one of these things. I, was, I spoke to Carl Palmer, and he said, you know, it was almost like they thought that they were blessed, you know, that they, they had all these contacts and they were being pushed. He said, but it can't, it was almost happened by accident. They just happened, they played the first gig in, in Plymouth, Guildhall, and then the, the next gig was the oh, other White Festival. And they, they were made, weren't they? Yeah, Two that's gigs. right. Incredible. Right. Uh, so, I don't know, with hindsight, yeah, they really fitted the American market uh, later on. They, they were huge in the States, but I'm not sure that, that they were necessarily put together in that kind of... Uh, Pre, right, a lot of the British press is quite sceptical about them. I can remember John Peel describing them as a, as a waste of talent and electricity. <laughs> he did, yeah. yeah. He took it very memorable. Them very really, badly. really took against them, really. yeah, because yeah, yeah. he'd been so supportive of a lot of these prog groups earlier on. But they also, they, the thing about Emerson Lake Palmer is, is that they uh, they embraced the showmanship mm. side of the, the whole thing, didn't they? That they were doing this mad thing with a piano that went up in the air and yeah. Emerson continuing to play while rotating in the air, didn't he? Or, or but it was above the crowd as well. I mean, you imagine doing health that now. And safety. Uh, yeah, health and safety. 
insurance crisis. Uh, you know, but they, they grabbed all those opportunities, didn't they? Well, that's right. Because it was spectacle. It, had, it was a really important part of it, wasn't it? That's right. I think they were thought of... Uh, I think they were one of the groups who... They, just some of the critics who were not necessarily kindly disposed towards progressive rock to start with, although they were in, in sort of at the start, really. Um, I mean, uh, I spoke to Chris Welsh, and he said that he, went, he, he was at the Isle of Wight Festival with some of the Melody Maker crew, and they were all kind of rolling their eyes, thinking, oh, God, what is this? Because they were cannons, you know... To the left, to the right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, uh, and then it just went from there, and, they, you know, the, 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 there was the spectacle of it, and... Um, but I suppose the views of some people... I mean, I, uh, again, I, I spoke to Chris Welsh, who, who was a melody maker journalist uh, from the 60s uh, and through the whole heyday of prog and, and was a big fan of prog. And he said, you know, basically you had this thing where you had people who were really played really well, they had lots of lights, lots of smoke everywhere, and it was brilliant, rather than seeing sort of, sort of guys in suits playing. Or right, something. right, right. So he, he was kind of unapologetically keen on that sort of showmanship, but that put a lot of people off. They thought, you know, what's this got to do with rock and roll, basically? Not much, perhaps. Now, or, I don't know, maybe... Genesis came along slightly, slightly later, did they? they? They all seemed to me to be appealed to a slightly younger... Well, they 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 actually came. Sector. They were around uh, just a bit earlier than them, Slate and Palmer, when when they started. Although they, they actually started as a, uh, they weren't meant to be a band. They were, they were meant to be a sort of group of songwriters who hadn't actually intended to play live. Uh, but they were, they 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 had a bit more of a sort of that strange kind of Victorian kind of creepy storytelling aspect to them. Uh, on, on albums like Nursery Crime, you know, but it was a different matter. You know, it, it, it wasn't all showbiz, uh, sort of glitz and, and sort of bombast. It, you know, it, it, it was more this kind of no, ex- all about exploring a Greek world of legend fantasy. Of stuff, yeah. Yeah. fantasy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, as, as Tony Banks said in, in, in the BBC documentary, uh, you know, what you're saying about love songs, you know, we weren't really very. Uh, experience with women, but in that case, one wrote about Ovid, and he wrote. <laughs> one wrote about Ovid. You feel comfortable there? That's <laughs> right. Knew what you were talking about. Yeah, and they did the uh, Fountain of Salamarsis on the Nursery yeah. Rhyme is indeed about it's about Ovid. Metamorphosis. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's actually taken from a poem by Ovid. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that wasn't too rock and roll. Uh, but I think yes, I mean. <coughs> They had they had had a theatrical aspect to them, which was a bit less. I think some people just thought, as I say, Emerson Lake and Palmer were rather vulgar, really. Yeah. Right. Uh, but Genesis were, and they had a weird humour, almost like that kind of Monty Python esque. Yeah, thing. You, see, you mentioned in the book. You think Gen- they're very influenced by Spike Milligan and Monty. Yeah. Python. Well, where, where can you see that uh, express itself? As- uh, well, um, uh, Peter Gabriel said that. Uh, Spike Milligan was one of his main influences and had been a huge, a huge influence on that area and sort of coming out of the goons and then, 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 then into Spike Milligan and then to Monty Python. And you can hear that sort of slightly uh, eccentric British humour on things like Harold the Barrel on, on Nursery Rhyme yeah, yeah. where the, the, the guy sort of cuts off his toes and 
serves them to to customers in his cafe <laughs> and then commits suicide, which is yeah. you know it's it, it's a strange song. Um, yeah, it is a pretty. But, but, yeah. but also, also not a love song. We'll uh, move yeah. on to a gr- we'll move on to a group who are not known for their eccentric British humour. Yes. <laughs> Uh, my personal favourite, you know, because my theory has always been with, with progressive rock, everybody liked one, whether mm. you were a deep end person or not. Everybody liked one, and I always loved Yes. Did you like Yes? They, they were one of the first groups that I uh, liked. Yeah, uh, the one, one of the first groups in that genre when I was a kid. I think uh, Fragile and Close to the Edge were the ones that, that got me. And uh, I was just, just speaking about them. Prior to coming here, that they there was something about them. They had this sort of sort of pop songs. They were they had a lot of influences. Simon and Garfunkel, yeah, yeah some of them. The, the Beatles, the Birds, Nash and Young, yeah. the Beatles, the Birds, yeah. Buffalo Springfield, yeah. And then then you get Emerson, uh, sorry, not Emerson, uh, Rick Wakeman, who was classically trained, but who who had played on pop sessions. Bill Bruford, who who was a sort of jazzish rock drummer. Chris Squire, I'm not quite sure how you would have. Uh, he seemed to create his own style of playing. And uh, Steve Howe, who, who loved um, Chet Atkins. Flamin- flamenco or something? Uh, yeah, yes, uh, so, yeah. Uh, Chet Atkins and Flamenco. Yeah. So that was, that was, you know, people love to think of, of Yes as being almost pseudo-classical, but on things like the Yes album... So and, many influences. Uh, they yeah. were far, far greater influences and not that many classical influences, really. First time I heard Yes, I think, on the radio, they were playing Something's Coming from West Side Story. Mm. They, 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 did, that was one of their calling cards in the early days. Incredible. They did um, every little thing by the Beatles, by the Beatles. as well, oh, yeah. and yeah, yeah. Kind, of, kind of kind of transformed it into this uh, kind of psych- post psychedelic kind of stomping thing that went on for ages. Now well, you've clearly listened to a huge amount of of this record yeah. uh, of these recordings. There must be times when even you listen to it and go, you've gone too far. Here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Go and tell us <laughs> what they some are. examples. Um, OK. I don't want to sort of betray the cause, but let's just... Say, so we'll oh, yeah. go no further than this, uh, Rube. Six Wives of Henry VIII on Ice? No, six, not quite. Uh, <laughs> I think the one that I... Uh, there was there, a couple of things... Let's uh, a passion played by Jethro Tull. Oh, yeah. okay, All right. Some people might not like this very much, but it seems like every phrase in the entire uh, album is 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 over ornamented, and it's just, it just seems to be relentlessly over ornamented all the way through. Everyone playing too much, everything over complicated, and then they, the only respite is is the story of the hair who lost his spectacles. Which really isn't that much of a bonus to my <laughs> uh, mind, and uh, some people might disagree. I, I mentioned this to Ian Anderson. He said, "Yeah, you know," he said, "he said it's just too much. The whole thing is too much." He said, "But when you got people who 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 play really well, he said it was it was difficult to say. Can you just play that a bit in four four, please?" Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, be, and there would be all these kind of uh, a huge amount of uh, of over ornamentation. And he said it, it didn't benefit from, quote, those bloody saxophones, which he played. <laughs> so that, that album, to me, I, I, I've tried, but I, I just can't, can't okay, handle it. OK, fair enough. There's, well, there's I, another major theme in the book is about dressing up, you know. Yes, I, I think, the people I think this yeah. is important, you know, because yeah. dressing up was a huge part of this, wasn't it, even from early on? That's right. Um, 
Rick Wakeman, uh, I had, had the, the great pleasure of interviewing him, and he was going about how, how ludicrous people looked on top of the pops and went, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and I it, saw him in 1971. I think he's wearing a cape that was covered in mirrors. It's a mirror. Is that right? And it would reflect the light all over the hall. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it was... It was there, there was a bit of Liberace going on, I think. Yeah, with, absolutely. With yes, in a way. Yes, I, I, I suppose there was all there was all, there was the glam rock stuff going on as well, and that, I think that kind of rather fed into the progressive rock um, mindset as well. So, and so you know, we, I mean, he, he was obviously joking that he, he he would laugh at Slade or sort of Gary Glitter, but he would go on stage with a huge cape, you know, and. Uh, they wouldn't just take to the stage in their street clothes, would they? Well, you see, but Pink Floyd did. They made yeah, a habit of, yeah. of looking just like... There was that mixture of, of the prog bands, the progressive rock bands who'd been influenced by glam rock and, and just wanted to show off and dress up as well. But there was that uh, the great temptation to dress up. And people like Pink Floyd, you know, that sort of scruffy student, what you see is what you get, you know, T-shirt with a Guinness logo and loom pants, and you know... You're on, basically. So I think there, there was a definite split. It was almost like some of the people... I mean, obviously, Keith Emerson would, would wear some fairly outrageous uh, costumes as well, and a lot of people thought, oh, it's just kind of a bit bit hokey, really. You know, what we want is the honest stuff, the true honest, you know, jeans jean, jeans, and T-shirt look. So, yeah, there was that split then. Right, definitely. right. Okay. Yeah. Let's just uh, talk about uh, just four bands chosen... Not quite at random. No, no, they're from just... the army <laughs> of loon-panted... Uh, they're just interesting little facts. Arthur Brown, you're about Arthur Brown, and just, you forget in people's stories, there he is playing at Communist Party Parisian parties, isn't he? Uh, uh, yeah. We're, we're along with Pink Floyd, I think, and, uh, and, and various others, and... Uh, and singing completely new. Yeah, yeah that's right. right. Singing yeah. naked at a communist party event in Paris. <laughs> You're thinking this is absolutely brilliant, you know. Well, th- I think this is also a slightly kind of kind of different aspect of progressive rock, rather than the the, the sort of glitzy showbiz spectacle uh, spectacles. This is guys who are the real freaks, basically, who came out of yeah, what yeah. was called the underground, yeah. more countercultural. You know, if you're invited to a, a communist rally at in Paris, then of course you end up naked, you know. And uh, yeah, I think he was warned that that the that I th- I th- I'm not sure if the the, the the sort of local council had lost their deposit or something or other. They they basically had had caused a lot of trouble, or, or you know, or was kind of banned from the party or something ridiculous. But there was this problem uh, that that he wanted to cause basically. So uh, um, yeah. He was quite a kind of willful character. I, I, I remember that he, him saying that um, he wasn't sure what to do with uh, Arthur, uh, with with the crazy world of Arthur Brown and, uh, and then Arthur Brown's Kingdom Come, which was in the uh, the early seventies. So he took some mescaline and went to a field and sat down. And he he said he sat down and looked at this. There's this huge. Uh, vision of an angel with a sword and you know with a shield and with flames coming out of it he thought i think that means that i carry on with the band <laughs> <laughs> which he does yeah, isn't yeah. It? i mean to this day I think the he, crazy does. Well, he does yeah he does although he wears a hot plate on his head yeah. doesn't he now yeah rather than a... <laughs> isn't that the case well, yeah, you uh, can't set fire to, you know, your head. 
in the average venue nowadays. Is that right, Terry? Yeah. I think you confirmed yeah. that. <laughs> so, uh, just moving on, I've got, I've got a picture of curved air here mm. with a rare woman. Yes, exactly. I mean, you, you could count the women on this scene and on one hand, could you? Well, I, yeah, hardly any. Uh, there were hardly any at all. And I, I was trying to think about why, why there weren't, because I, I spoke to Sonia Christina, had two lengthy interviews with her, and funnily enough, I thought she might have had loads of kind of rather kind of leery, sort of leery... colours reminiscence she said no no not at all and this is what really surprised me well no misbehavior yeah she said there weren't there, there wasn't there was a lot of respect but i was thinking i suppose there weren't there there were women vocalists at the time and there weren't many women instrumentalists around in in rock at the time and i was thinking i i don't know it's hard to think to to know why there weren't more more women involved in, in progressive rock, because they weren't excluded as such. But I was thinking maybe the idea of joining a group and travelling up and down the M1 in a transit with a load of hairy, sweaty blokes after gigs probably might not have been that appealing. I mean, you know, it, it's not appealing for men to do that. I can say. <laughs> uh, so so that, that, that might have been off-putting. And I spoke to Annie Haslam from Renaissance as well, and she, she never had any... Problems. She just said that being being on the road with with, with a bunch of guys wasn't that much fun because they okay. they all, all wanted to go and get drunk afterwards. I'm sure Renaissance probably stopped short of throwing TV sets out of hotel windows. But yeah. uh, well, they're probably staying in hotels with no TVs in them. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, the, the, so we're looking at a picture of Quintessence. Yeah, lived yeah. in Abbott Grove, didn't they? Yeah, That's right. Sort of, sort of, I remember seeing them at the, the Guildford Civic Hall. And they, they all changed their names. That's they? right. They have the, the famous song, We're Getting It Straight in Notting Hill Gate, We Sit Around and We Meditate. And, <laughs> and they did. Uh, they they, they uh, um, basically were keen to kind of get past... Uh, sorry, they, they were keen to try and get some form of spiritual... Enlightenment, and as many people did at the time, they looked towards the east. I mean, obviously George Harrison being a very high-profile example, and they met a Swami from Nepal, Akim Bamba, I think he was called, and um, they ended up. He lived in their house in the end. They actually had a Swami living up in the house, and he <laughs> he he gave them all all all, all names, uh, kind of Hindu-based names. So so you had. Uh, I spoke to someone called Phil Shiva Jones, and and I was mentioning about the uh, flautist Raja Ram. And he, what was he, his real name? Go on. Well, he he looked. I said to him, of course, you know, you, you had a multi-ethnic band, and he's going, what? Did we? <laughs> I said, well, you know, Raja Ram, droopy moustache, the kind of Hindu um, <laughs> tilaka, long hair, kind of looked mystical. He's going, no, he was Ronald Rothfield. <laughs> <laughs> No wonder he changed his name. <laughs> <laughs> but he had been given the, his, his name by, the, by this uh, Swami. Yeah. Uh, so he was now Raja Ram. I thought, God, I thought, well, that certainly had my... Uh, that, that, that punctured the myth for me, that did. Um, but, yeah, he, uh, the Swami gave the mantras which they would make as, up as part of their songs. And uh, 
they were quite serious. They had a fairly abstemious uh, time because they were told not to smoke any dope, which is that they didn't quite manage to right. uh, be sort of totally abstemious, but they were fairly serious. They, they, they referred to by some people as the Hindu Grateful Dead. <laughs> so now most of the groups that you, you deal with in, in, in this book, and there's an awful lot of groups, are people we still kind of remember, mm. even if it's people like Quintessence, you know, but you do occasionally write about groups who have extraordinary stories. They're gracious. Very that, that, that we, that, well, I didn't know. I mean, tell us about gracious. Well, I'd heard them years and years ago, and I, I found that I, I, I kind of tracked one of them down. So I said, would they like to be interviewed for the, the, the book? And they, the uh, three members who, who's still in contact, we, I had, had a chat with them. Uh, they were one of the first bands on Vertigo. And uh, as with many groups from that era, basically the, the obscure ones just kind of ran out of money and they just kind of broke up, basically. So the, they only released two albums. And they, they, they played, uh, played, played at places like, like the Star Club first, like, like many groups did, and had, had, had a lot of interesting stories about that. These, these young... Guys, teenage guys, and there were loads of there were sort of hookers and strange kind of uh, guys in the club, and he, he just said, you know, we were so innocent, uh, but they they had to play for hours, as you know, as many groups did at the time, who went over there like massively long sets, and uh, and they, 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 there was one guy said, uh, you know, I want you to play Midnight Hour, and he said, uh, they said. We don't play Midnight Hour. And he goes, Look, when I get my gun out, you play Midnight Hour. <laughs> and he actually got a rifle out and shot it. And they're going, OK, we'll play Midnight Hour. We'll, we'll learn it pretty quickly. And uh, they, they hooked up with Norrie Paramore, the producer. Oh, really? They then, they, they, were big, they were playing on the bill with King Crimson in 1969. That's right. Supported the Floyd, I think. Yeah. And right, yeah. Uh, they said that. They played the Isle of Wight, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They, they, at uh, the uh, Crimson gig, he said uh, they went on and they, they were just going from the Norrie Paramore pop stuff in, you know, you know, into longer compositions. And they, they, they went and played their set. And, and uh, Robert Fripp said, we'll go on second and, you, you know, you can headline. And so they said, OK, fair enough. So then King Crimson went on and did 21st century schizoid man. And they go, wow, no, no, no. <laughs> and the, the guy said that uh, Robert Lipson, the drummer, said, I've never heard anything like it. It was terrifying. And they made an excuse that, that they'd spilt sort of, sort of beer into some uh, plug board or something and, you know, couldn't go on again. Uh, but, yeah, they, they So played... much drama compressed into such a short career. Yeah, they, they played... There's a movie in it. They, they played play the Isle of Wight Festival and uh, they're on the... Uh, they, there's some footage on, on YouTube. Uh, there was a, a book made of the Isle of Wight Festival and they thought, wow, we're in this. And they had a picture of, of, of the Gracious and underneath it said, the band Black Widow. So they thought, oh, no, why? <laughs> so, no. Uh, 
hard luck stories. Where right. is prog today? We should say, where, where yes. are examples of prog today? <laughs> I mean, you say in the book that punk rock kind of finished, didn't, well, you make, make quite clear that punk rock did not finish it off because punk mm. rockers, well, all of them were such enormous fans. Johnny Rotten was a huge Van de Graaff generator fan, wasn't he? And Adam Ant was particularly keen on the, on the, was it Spirit? I think, I can't remember now, but there were various. I can't remember him, yeah. but uh, there were a lot of people who, who were. Argent, it was Argent. That's absolutely <laughs> right, Argent. Um, where, where is it today? Well, that's a real, that's a very hard question to answer in a way, uh, because what I think the, the, the music I was dealing with in, in the book, there was a certain kind of era and a certain heyday, and after the late 70s, everything changed, really. You, you, you got certain groups coming back in the 80s, people like... <laughs> Well, the late 70s, after punk had kind of died down a bit, people like Marillion and Pendragon and Palace and, and the like. But I kind of view, I kind of view the, the, that spirit as, as having carried on in, you know, in a slightly different way. So now what you have is groups who have got that kind of progressive idea in terms of, of, of experimenting with structures and different time signatures who might have... Heavy, heavy metal influences, uh, you know, it's cross-pollinate, that, that idea from the 70s is now cross-pollinated with, with a lot of other genres, and you get people who, bands from that era still going, and you get people who do more kind of experimental stuff that isn't like the 70s, but kind of carries on that spirit in a way. Right, right. Well, th this is this is devoted. It's focuses yeah. on UK progressive rock and the seventies. An extraordinary piece of work, and it's uh, don't drop it on your foot. Still, <laughs> <laughs> Alan you, Partridge you, 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 right. yes. <laughs> you will dislocate something, but it's been fascinating to hear about it. It's called "A New Day Yesterday." What do you think, Mike Barnes? Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.